0: Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Daniel Alemann.
1: And my name is Alicia
0: Maver. And today we're talking to Dr. Anna Becker. Anna is currently a researcher at the Center for Privacy Studies at the University of Copenhagen. Before that, she completed her doctorate at the University of Cambridge, was an assistant professor at the University of Basel, and also held the Balzan Skinner Fellowship in 2015. Anna has published widely on early modern political ideas, and her forthcoming book will be the first study that explores gender and renaissance political thought. This week, Anna has returned to Cambridge to deliver the keynote lecture at her graduate conference on the body and politics, and we're delighted that she's here with us today. Thanks very much, Anna.
2: Well, thank you so much, Daniel and Alicia, for having me.
1: We would like to begin with our by now traditional opening question of this podcast. How and why did you become interested in intellectual history?
2: Well, that's actually a very interesting question. I think I've always been drawn to look at contemporary political matters. And I think I also always wanted to know why things were like they are. And I wanted to look at foundations. But at the same time, I think I wasn't aware that intellectual history existed. This has partly to do, of course, with my ignorance, but also with the German system where intellectual history does not really exist. So I think I was a bit frustrated with political science, what I studied at university, at least in the way that I had been taught it. It seemed a bit shallow to me and somehow I couldn't make sense of, you know, political science. It did not answer to my question or to the way I thought about things. I realized, however, that when I studied political science in Berlin at the otto sur Institute, that the courses that I took home most from were those on philosophers and politics. So I specifically actually remember a course on Immanuel Kant's ethics. And um, I remember that I wrote an essay on mental disability and Kantian morals. And I really enjoyed this deep thinking with a text that was clearly saying something important, but in another time. Well, and then I went to Italy to do my Erasmus year in Milan, and Erasmus is really this wonderful instrument of the European Union that gives you funding to study in a different European city, and I enjoyed myself so much. But I also there found a fantastic professor, Antonino De Cupero, and he taught Storia di Pensiero Politico, so history of political thought, and I knew this is what I wanted to do. It was all so fascinating, it was so interesting, and it really satisfied my desire for looking at foundations and to think with beautiful texts, which was something that I was missing from political science. And then I went back to Berlin and wrote my master's dissertation on the question that I was most interested in, namely, why are women excluded from politics? And I actually wrote this on Machiavelli, Bodin, Hobbes, if you can believe it, so... I was set thematically. Well, and then I applied to Cambridge, and I actually had no idea that such a thing as a Cambridge school existed. <laughs> but I learned that it did. And um, I was supervised by Annabelle Brett. And then she really, really helped me to see what is possible in intellectual history.
0: During your studies in Bonn and Berlin, you also worked as a researcher in the German Bundestag. In what ways did the insights into the practice of current day politics that you gained in this capacity relate to or even shape the kinds of questions that you've pursued in your historical research? And I mean, you've kind of already pointed to this with this question about the exclusion of women, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting and a difficult question, actually, because while I worked in Parliament for quite a long time, and I certainly learned a lot, it was also sort of difficult to... Combine this with my interests. So I went in there, I was so happy and I was so in awe. And I thought, oh, now I finally understand how one can move things and make them better. And I just was very naive. So I found the whole process for me quite frustrating. Because I felt immediately that this was not about grand ideas of how to make society better, but about little amendments to legislation that came then with so many compromises that they seemed surreal somehow. I think that now that I'm older and have sat in many university committees, I have now an interest in structure of decision dynamics, and I think I would now find it much more interesting. In that way, the Bundestag is in a way responsible for me becoming an academic because I knew that I wanted to think more deeply and not superficially about things and about politics. But then the other thing that really hit me in the Bundestag was I had a great boss, Willy Brase, and I had a fantastic colleague, Horst Ahrens. And this colleague was a bit older at the time, and he had spent the 1960s in West Berlin writing big commentaries on Marxism. And he led a leftist bookstore. And from him, I learned so much about the possibilities and the necessities of very left politics. That was fantastic, and so particularly because in that time, the late 90s, the early 2000s, social democrat politics was very new labor, very Neue Mitte. So very open to neoliberalism. And then working next to this very traditional social democrat who looked at everything through a Marxist lens, taught me that you can think about things in very interesting ways that are also different. And he also taught me that political debate means debate, means an exchange of ideas, and it means to be extremely strict. So again, in some indirect way, the Bundestag made me an academic, I think.
1: Your forthcoming book explores gender and Renaissance political thought, with a focus on Italy and France in the 15th and 16th centuries. This was a time when women were notoriously excluded from direct political participation. So can you flesh out for us what it means to read early modern political texts from a gender perspective, and in doing so, how this might relate to, or go beyond, a focus on women? Yes.
2: So when I say I do gender in Renaissance political thought, most people instantly assume that I work on queenship. But I'm actually not interested in that because I'm also not interested in kings and in kingship because I'm interested in what we now think of the state and which, of course, had been the civitas, the political community, even the res publica in early modern Europe. I want to know how this political sphere relate to women and in what way this political sphere is gendered. So I think that we can gender early modern thought in a myriad of ways. But this understanding that citizenship and gender relationship in early modern political thought go hand in hand offers such a rich trove of reflections on hierarchy and equality and political love that really delights me. So I think reading early modern political texts from a gendered perspective is really also following early modern practices. And at the same time, it helps us ruffle our narrative of exclusion and inclusion. And at the same time, I think gender is integral for all historians of political thought to understand, because with a gendered lens, we can rethink key conceptions like liberty and justice.
0: In a recent article that grew out of the Balsian Skinner lecture you gave in 2015, you outline Hannah Arendt's influential reading of the public and private, and how this has informed subsequent scholarship on early modern political thought, notably by John Pocock. How do you go about in your work challenging Arendt's reading of a divide between a political public and a non-political private sphere, and what makes the early modern Aristotelian tradition, the so-called civic humanists study focused on, particularly suitable for such a deconstruction?
2: So I think the answer to this goes together with what I said earlier. So I believe that actually doing history of political thought is also part of doing political theory, because I think that political theory is based on some foundations. And if we question these foundations, we can also rethink our contemporary argument. And I just want to say that I'm a deep admirer of Hannah Arendt. But her work is not at all about early modern history of political thought, but her interpretation became so important for political theory and also for the history of political thought, frankly, in a way that many people don't realize. Because her account of the ancient foundations of the political practice is not actually seen as Arendtian, but it's seen as Aristotelian. Therefore, in order to say anything about politics and its boundaries, what I want to do, I had to first deconstruct this Arendtian narrative, which we can also, I think, call the handbook narrative of Aristotle. And this narrative says that Aristotle and the ancients in general admired the public political sphere, and they really disparaged the so-called private sphere, the household. Everything biological, this narrative tells us, is pure necessity, and necessity is the opposite of the political. But this kind of reading of Aristotle is not really sustained in the text, nor is it sustained in early modern Europe. I've said earlier just how much importance the household sphere held for political philosophers, and this strict divide between public and private, between the political and the apolitical, is just not there. Tracing early modern thinkers and how they saw what was politics, what was included in it, then shows a completely different picture. It's very enlightening, again, as a matter of history of political thought, not only of gender studies. And here, I think, is a good point to come to your question about civic humanism. So these civic humanists are, of course, very important in the narrative of republicanism because we like to see them as champions of civic glory, of republican values, as devoted public players. Showing that these public men really thought deeply about the relationship of marriage and citizenship, that they thought a good citizen needs to marry and have children and be actively part in their education, is, I think, a very fruitful way of showing that our convenient narratives need to be changed when we bring a focus on gender in it. I do not mean that I'm describing a political thought that was all about equality of citizens. It's exactly that tension between political wives who are nevertheless not participating in politics as we understand it today that also shows that our Republican foundations are based on deep hierarchical and exclusivist thinking. Since women are already included in Republican politics, this also shows that it is not so easy to just tackle them in the republican principle of citizenship, or tackle it on the republican principle of citizenship, would they then become double citizens, or what would be their role? So I think my work can also show that you cannot just include she, where early modern thinkers said he, because this he was deliberate. But of course this idea that the civic humanists are these wonderful republicans is also a political decision. And that had to do with the figure of Hans Baron, or Hans Baron, who had a vision of participatory citizenship that was born out of frustration with the politics of the Weimar Republic. And this kind of thinking has also inspired Pocock much later. And Arendt's interpretation of Aristotle is based on Werner Jäger, who is a very ambiguous figure in the early 20th century German academia. So he is this wunderkind of classicism who openly flirted with fascism. So I think there is a sense that the Aristotelianism of civic humanism has always been a place in which political thinking of the now was negotiated. So we like to fight our contemporary political battles on the backs not only of Aristotle, but also on the back of Leonardo Bruni, and at some point, I actually want to, or'd love to write an article about that because I think it's fascinating, and I think that Michael Sonnenscher is actually working on very similar lines. So I'm really looking forward to get to reading this.
0: The concept of economics from the Greek oikonomia, the old science of the household, plays a crucial role in how we might rethink gender and political thought, as you've argued. You've shown that its importance lies not only in the work of those that we might traditionally classify as early modern Aristotelians, but also in figures such as Jean Baudin. Could you briefly outline how Baudin uses economics in his political arguments and how this might lead us to reconsider his position in relation to other thinkers in the 16th century?
2: Yes. So for Baudin, economics was absolutely central to thinking about the state. And it is in direct engagement with Aristotelian ideas that he develops his line of thinking. In my work, I argue that while many scholars describe Bodin as an anti-Aristotelian, he's actually writing a commentary on Aristotle. So I don't think you can understand him without understanding Aristotle and early modern Aristotelianism. And in general, of course, this whole Aristotle and anti-Aristotelian fight in the Renaissance and in early modern Europe is a bit artificial. So quite early on in his Il Livre de la République, Bonin attacks Aristotle and Xenophon for having separated politics from economics, because he says that just doesn't make sense. He thinks that thinking about politics needs to be all-encompassing of all parts of human life, and actually from this derive very many interesting consequences. For Baudin, economics is central because the household, as he repeats over and over again, is the source and the image of the Respublica, the Commonwealth. This might seem banal, but for Baudin, it is absolutely central, and he takes this so literally and so seriously, and he explores the implication into all avenues. Again, also for Baudin, then, marriage becomes absolutely central, But I would argue it is for him even more central than to his forerunners. I've said before that Renaissance Aristotelians made the marriage relationship to be about equal citizenship. But for Baudin, the marriage relationship was about sovereignty, first and foremost. Marriage meant the birth of the Commonwealth, but marriage also was the place in which sovereignty was created ultimately deriving from the fall when God curses Eve and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. This was the exact moment that God gave Imperium to Adam over Eve. But it was more than that. It was the moment that Imperium, power, came into the world and all power subsequently derives from that source. And therefore, this is a central point political power, and particularly sovereign power, maestas imperii, is essentially the power that a husband has over the wife. And this is not a hidden argument in Bodin, but it is often not taken very seriously. In fact, those people that saw that Bodin's political power came from an engagement with the economic sphere have called Bodin's thought patriarchal. But I think this is very wrong. Sir Robert Filmer, of course later, thought that all power came from fathers of the families. Baudin, however, thought the pater familias was the image of a sovereign ruler because he had power over his wife, not because he was a father. It is a crucial difference because it means that even with Baudin, the relationship of husband and wife has repercussions for citizenship. Also for him, like for his republican forerunners. Now, for Baudin, this is not an equal relationship, but one of absolute hierarchy, just like ruler to citizens in Baudin's Commonwealth. And these are in this absolute relationship of hierarchy. Now, later thinkers, particularly in the Aristotelian tradition, have engaged with that economic facet in Baudin, and they have particularly attacked his idea that husbands had full power over their wives. They basically thought that was ridiculous. (laughs) But it is very important for my narrative that something changes in the 16th century, and it changes with reformed thought as well. So I believe that while for Aristotelians and for Baudin, the head of the household as husband is so important for making sense of political rule and citizenship, with the Reformation on the continent and in England in the late 16th century, the pater familias as father becomes the most important political economic trope. And it is of course then that we can talk about patriarchal thought. But it does something for the state and the conception of it, when the citizen is not a wife anymore, but a child. The subject
1: becomes infantilized. you might want to say. Apart from your work on the Aristotelian tradition and the discourse on economics, there is another thinker that we haven't talked about so far and who is equally central to your forthcoming book, Gendering the Renaissance Commonwealth, namely Niccolò Machiavelli. Now, in a dominant understanding, Machiavelli was basically a misogynist. For instance, he characterised Fortuna as the female force of nature that the prince must beat and conquer. But you have argued that this view is short-sighted and that Machiavelli was actually much more subversive. Could you elaborate on this? And more generally, what is Machiavelli's place in a broader story that you're telling?
2: Yes, thank you. So subversion is really for me the main thing that I connect with Machiavelli. I just think he is just so subversive and I love him for that. You can read his work over and over again, and it has so many layers. It's just wonderful to engage with his thought. He works in the context of my sort of research and also the context of the book in a way, again, as somebody who disrupts things. Yes, he is not an Aristotelian, but he, of course, reacts to the civic humanists of his day, really also exposing what they are doing as kitsch. He doesn't think that the household is this wonderful place where, you know, husband and wife live together in harmony and have their children, and that also means something great for the republic. He thinks politics is much more messy. Politics needs discord. Politics is, it's something else than, you know, lovely household relationships. And sort of my research explores this, this back and forth between him and the civic humanists. And then it's also fantastic to see what he does with Fortuna. I mean, I understand why earlier generations have thought that he was a misogynist because there seems to be this constant battle between Fortuna and Virtù in his work. But I would think this is actually a very fertile battle and you can't really have Virtù without Fortuna. And so those people who think Machiavelli advocates the beating of Fortuna often haven't read the next sentence in that chapter in which Machiavelli says, well, you know, she's just attracted to really young men and she just likes it rough. That doesn't mean that that's fantastically, you know, a feminist position, but it just shows that what I think he thinks of Fortuna, namely she is strong and you can't really maul her under. All you can do is try to attract her or safeguard, be safe from her you know, but you can never win her over. So this whole thing about Renaissance political thought is about that virtue wins over Fortuna is again being very subverted by Machiavelli. And the great thing as well is that when you read Machiavelli, he actually really likes some female rulers. I mean, Caterina Sforza is the prime example. And it's fascinating because he likes her As a capable ruler, somebody who has virtue, or virtu rather, but he shows her to have that virtue because she is a woman. So the story is that her city is under siege and her children are kidnapped and held ransom. And she manages to get back into the city, climbs the city walls, and then says to the people who try to overpower her, well, you can have my children. I have the means to make more. And then she lifts her skirts and exposes what's beneath them, namely her instrument to have more children. And Machiavelli loves that. He thinks that's great. So being a woman is not a Problem for Machiavelli. Maybe being effeminate, being weak, might be a problem. So, again, I'm never saying that our thinkers are wonderful, (laughs) equal opportunity people, but I just want us all to think about them in a bit more complex manner.
0: You've also written about the relationship of the human to the animal in the 16th century, highlighting that philosophical works in this period did not equate women with animals or slaves. You then tantalizingly hint at the notion that this should make us reevaluate the relationships between disenfranchised groups, and that such a reevaluation could be fruitful for considering pressing issues of our own time. So, what do you think we might learn from these early modern relationships?
2: Yes, um, that was actually a very fruitful topic. I was asked to contribute to a special issue on animal rights, and I thought, oh, what on earth can I do for this? And then I realized that there's this trope in secondary literature that early modern thinkers saw women just as animals, or put animals and women in the same category of apolitical subordinate creatures. And that got me thinking and reading. And of course, early modern philosophers were much more complex. First of all, I found it super enlightening that for early modern thinkers, we are all animals, maybe political ones. But... They see every living being as animal. Sixtus Burke, the Basel humanist, wrote, for example, that human beings are, quote, social animals, bipeds. You know, have two legs. Fine. <laughs> um, so clearly, um, he had no problem with understanding man as something that can be classified next to animals. Now, I don't think I can give you here the details of my argument, but in general, I just found it amazing how complex early modern thinkers thought about the relationship of humans to other animals and then of women to non-human animals and then non-human animals to slaves. And they really explore against so many avenues and it's surprising and sometimes even touching. So Antonio Montecatini, this wonderful Aristotelian commentator, said that the animal is the socius and minister of the human being in the household. Or Garcilaso de la Vega says that the Incas thought it was funny that the Spaniards were so lazy that they introduced oxen to plow the field. And Machiavelli, of course, famously says that the perfect ruler needs to be a lion and a fox. So all these discussions are going on, but they have nothing to do with equating women with animals. I mean, of course, this trope also exists, of course, particularly with those writers who write against female queenship and female rulership in general. But it is not pervasive for political thinkers. And I was struck by the amount of separation and classification that the early modern thinkers displayed. And again, how many connections they also drew, but in different ways than we think about it. And that got me thinking. So feminists are taken to be experts about other groups of political marginalization, disabled people, animals, race issues, migrant groups. And, I mean, of course, I strongly believe that there's a common ground for all marginalised groups. There is, of course, also the necessity of understanding each structural injustice on its own terms, because every sort of exclusion has their own dynamics and systematic implications.
1: More recently, you've also begun to work on political thought beyond a strictly European tradition. You've looked at the royal commentaries on the Inca Garcilaso de la Vega, the son of a Spanish conquistador and a noblewoman from the ruling Inca family. This text from the early 17th century is quite an unusual piece of writing. What got you interested in the hybrid figure of Garcilaso, who embraced both his Spanish and his Quechua heritage?
2: Yes, so I stumbled across Garcilaso during my PhD actually because he quoted Baudin and I found that interesting. And then I discovered his writing and his person and his work is just so amazing that I wanted to work with it. So usually I'm absolutely not interested in any biographical information about the writers of the text that I'm reading. I mean I hardly can remember any dates or what they you know, what else they did or besides writing. But With Garcilaso, I just found this fascinating. So Garcilaso is a mestizo born in Cusco from a conquistador and an Inca princess, as you just said. And then he writes the first history of Peru written by someone who was born there, which in itself is just fascinating. And he sailed from the new world in the old. So he really takes a different passage in a way. And also very interesting, he hates that terminology, new world and old. He thinks that's ridiculous. And then he becomes this military man and starts writing in his later life in Spain. And the first thing he publishes is a translation of the Dialoghi d'Amore of Leo Hebreus, who himself is a wanderer between cultures and languages. And what is wonderful is that Garcilaso stylizes himself as Inca. As a descendant of the ruling family, although Inca is actually reserved for these, as Garcilaso himself says, that are of pure blood from a noble Inca father and a noble Inca mother. But for him, his lineage and his claim to his lineage comes from his mother. And then he writes this history of Peru that's obviously a manifesto for Mestizo power And this power comes partly from blood, but it also comes from language. So for him, the mestizos are the ones that have the power of the language because they can understand and speak Spanish and Quechua and Latin. And Garcilaso, of course, writes a text that is steeped in classical tropes and learning. And it's fascinating how he turns that classical European learning around against the European world. So, what I want to do with Garcilaso is to explore translation, both literal and cultural. And of course, we can also see how gendered his sort of take on relation is, but also his way of thinking about politics, because that politics comes directly from a gendered claim, a claim that through his mother's inheritance, he can rule, he and other mestizos can rule the new world. And with him, then I'm actually also going to think about blood and milk and perhaps skin, because there are all these tropes that he's really interested in. And um, I think it can be
1: very, very fruitful to explore those. We have one last question. You have just given a keynote lecture at our annual graduate conference on the body in politics. And bodies also play a crucial role in your second book project. Would you mind telling us a bit more about your current research and anything else you've got planned for the future?
2: Of course, I'm delighted. So the first book is out of the way, finally after a long time. And the next book is going to be called Politics That Matters. And it will be about the body and the material foundations of early modern political thought. So I really want to explore... The body of the Commonwealth as something that has flesh and blood and is complex and complicated, but is corporeal and embodied. And I also would like to draw connections from that political body to the body of the citizens. And again, with this, really following early modern practices, because I believe that our early modern thinkers were exactly interested in these questions. They were zooming in and out from considerations of the population to considerations of, you know, we would maybe say of abstract value, let's say laws, ideas of justice, ideas of institutions, to questions of the larger political body. And I think maybe in a way because we were so interested in finding out about the foundations of the abstract modern state, we have maybe neglected a bit that there were very concrete material foundations. And so I want to explore this together with, you know, with opening my my work to issues of more global nature, although, of course, my language is Latin and I, but still trying to find out what we can do. So I always like to explore things that maybe, that maybe in historical research are often done by let's say cultural historians and then I take them and see whether they have a place in the history of political thought and very often you find they had a very strong place these things were discussed and so so I want to go now to that avenue so gender is of course always a big theme and particularly with bodies gender becomes so important but I think Because of bodies, we can look at gender, again, then from a different angle than the one I have explored before. So this is my big, big project. And then I'm also, I'm really interested now in the history of historiography, because I do think that so much about our understanding of early modern political thought has to do with early 20th century thinkers, and it's fascinating. And um, yes, so I would like to to write more on Hannah Arendt, on Hans Baron, on Werner Jäger, on Ernst Kantorowicz, and I really want to understand how they shaped with their thinking our thinking about the Renaissance.
0: This all sounds fascinating. Thanks so much for talking to us, Anna.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot.
1: That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back soon with another episode of Interventions, the intellectual history podcast. In the meantime, feel free to rate us on iTunes. And don't forget, you can now also find us on Spotify.